Hi, my name is Jesse Cannon, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft these amazing records and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. In this episode, we're going to talk about Jason Mraz's new record, No. Last year, as Jason Mraz celebrated the 15th anniversary of his debut album, Waiting for My Rocket to Come, he began to ponder his time in the spotlight since getting his start in the coffee houses of San Diego. While amassing a global fan base for his positive message and soulful folk pop sound, Mraz has earned numerous diamond and platinum certifications for his various releases, including his classic singles, I Won't Give Up, Lucky, and the record-breaking, I'm Yours. One of the things that has always struck me about his music that sets him apart from his peers is his sense of melody doesn't make for background music. His vocals arrest your attention and make you listen. I've even observed his songs stop people dead in conversation since what he does in songs is so captivating. It's a testament to the generosity of spirit in Mraz's music that so many people have chosen his songs as the soundtrack to major moments in their lives, and new memories are certain to be made with the songs on his sixth album, No. The bulk of the album was written against the backdrop of the 2016 presidential election and its aftermath, and Mraz found himself writing a lot of frustrated, angry, even sad songs, but he says that was not what he wanted to sing about. Instead, he chose to convey an uplifting, positive message. For Jason, music has always served as a way to draw attention to the things he cares about, including farming. For years, he's been growing organic avocados at his Mraz family farms in Oceanside, California. He's an active citizen who attends city council meetings as a driving force behind inspiring other local farmers to convert to regenerative agriculture and preserve land. As he began to release the early singles of Noah, I sat down with him in Atlantic Studios in New York to discuss the record with him. Here's Jason talking about what he's been doing since his last album, Yes, was released. In 2014, I put out my Yes album, which is one of my favorite albums sonically and collaboratively. For almost 10 years prior to that album, I had been making backyard music with a band called Raining Jane, four incredible artists from Los Angeles. And we would get together once, twice a year, write songs. And over 10 years, I feel like we came upon our own sound. And we eventually had a catalog worthy of pitching as an album. And we got to make that album. It was called Yes. And we put it out in 2014. And what I love about it is that unlike other albums I've made where I would meet a producer and I would throw a bunch of songs at that person and then we would bring in session players, this album was a collaborative experience with a band. And I truly feel like it was the closest thing to a sound that I make with my friends. I'm not trying to devalue my other music, but this was just a homespun project that we were given permission to to develop. And sonically, it had very few ingredients, and it was largely acoustic, very rich and vocally driven record. I put that album out in 2014. It's called Yes, and we toured it for about 10 months all around the planet. We wrapped up in April of 2015. I had gotten engaged the week that album came out. And a lot of that album was called Yes, because it was the marriage of myself and Raining Jane, but it was also the writing was being fueled and fed by my wife, who was then my girlfriend. And when the album came out, I asked her to marry me. She said yes, and it really put this beautiful yes undertone to the tour and 
the project. In 2015, I told everyone I was going to take some time off to basically move in with my wife and plan a wedding, which we did. So 2015 was all about coming together, pulling our resources, pulling our interests, learning about who we, who we were, and planning a wedding for our family. January 1st, 2016, I made an intention to sit down and start writing music for a new record. Now, I wrote a lot in 2015. In fact, there are songs from 2015 on my new project, which is called No, aptly titled to follow up Yes. I asked him if it was a common thing to set an intention on New Year's Day each year. It's something I used to do at midnight because I used to have this belief, I shouldn't say used to, I still do, that whatever you're doing on New Year's Eve is going to influence your year. So I want to be playing music. I want to be being creative. It's said that if you want to be traveling, pack a suitcase and set that intention for yourself and have that suitcase ready at midnight and let the momentum of life and the universe and your intentions guide you to the life you want to live that year. On January 1st, 2016, I made plans to write something awesome. And I brought one of my favorite collaborators, Michael Natter. I wrote, I won't give up and 93 million miles with him. I said, let's, let's write a song today. I don't know what it is. I said, I want to dance. That's for sure. And I played a Phoenix record, one of my favorites. I said, let's go for something like this. And we did. We wrote a song. Long story short, though, it didn't make the cut. It did for a long time. I was like, wow, I think we just wrote the first song off the new record. That's how you feel after you write every song. You think this is the one over 2016 and even most of 17, I would end up writing about 140 songs. So all your favorites would continually get bumped as new favorites showed up on your catalog. In case you're not used to how records get made, 140 songs is a huge, huge number. So I asked him if that was normal for him. 140 is a little more, way more than I have done historically. Historically, I usually cap out around 80 once I get to about 80, I feel like, okay, most of the record's there. On Mr. A to Z, which is, my, which is my second album that I put out in 2005, I probably only wrote about 18 or 19 songs, but I was much, much younger, and I'd only put out one album, and I toured a lot, so I didn't have a work ethic or an understanding of how to really pull those songs together. I didn't have the experience. My third album, I gave myself more time, took a year off, went and lived, went and traveled, and, and took time to write lots of songs. So that was when I got back into the... 80s. Same with Love is a Four-Letter Word. Wrote a ton of songs for that. Ton of songs around the Yes album, but ended up going only with the songs I wrote with Raining Jane. This is all interesting because prior to the Yes record, one of the songs that I wrote was Have It All back in 2013. And it didn't make the cut on the Yes record. So much like a lot of my unreleased tunes, they just go in a pile in a folder and you turn the page and you walk away. And in 2016, when I started writing again, I didn't look back. I wanted to just keep moving forward. I just assumed that those songs were rejected in the past. They're probably going to be rejected in the future. Have It All ended up coming back into my life in mid-2017 when one of my co-writers, Jay Cash, his wife had become a big fan of that song way back in 2013 and is friends with David Silberstein, who's now my A&R rep here at Atlantic. Jay Cash's wife plays it for Silberstein and says, why isn't this song out? And he says, well, what song is this? So he calls me. He's like, what does this song have at all? I was like, oh, yeah, wow, okay, I forgot about that. Yeah, that one's pretty good. He's like, no, nah, man, I think it's better than good. I think we should work on this. So... I would say most of it was written. The verses were there. The chorus was there. The bridge was not there. The post-chorus was not there. So I shared it with Raining Jane, who's still my band to this day, and 
I said, what would we do today? How would we bring this up to live? Let's take out anything cringy or incomplete and just keep building it. So together we wrote the new post chorus in an entirely new bridge. Basically did that by email and iPhone recordings as I was packing my things up in San Diego to move to New York to be in Waitress on Broadway. While I was in Waitress on Broadway, David Hodges, who was also one of the co-writers and producers of Have It All, it was originally formed by myself, Jay Cash, and David Hodges. Hodges sent the files, the stems from 2013, to David Silberstein. Silberstein then sent a number of producers the stems and said, let's see what happens. And a number of producers sent back their submissions. And Andrew Wells' submission really stood out in its organic and acoustic sound. It sounded very classic. It didn't have synthesizers and very heavy processing. That was very refreshing to me and everyone else on the Atlantic team because it sounded in chronological integrity with Jason Mraz records. And it just had a nice timeless sound of real instruments you could recognize. And I think that also contributes to longevity. At least that's a prediction. I feel that you can recognize an 80s album because of 80s synthesizers. So I think, and again, this is just my opinion, but technology influences musical genres or musical trends. There are more creators in, than ever today on the planet thanks to computer technology and apps and loops. And with one finger on a keyboard, you know, almost an entire song is generated. And then it's up to you, the creator, to manipulate that and create your song out of it. But those programmable possibilities have, in my opinion, really driven the current landscape of music, at least 2018, let's say 17 and 18, where if I scan a new music friday there are many many similarities that almost sound like the same producer produced most of those tracks but i think it's mostly the technology and not necessarily the people when i heard andrew's productions i was comforted in that i don't know when this was recorded this sounds to me like my love is a four-letter word album which we did in 2011 with humans playing acoustic instruments guitars electric guitars drums you know b3 organs pianos etc things that require a human touch andrew delivers his have it all. I thought, great. Next step is I need to get into the studio and recut the post chorus and the new bridge and get Raining Jane in on it as well. So in this very studio that we are sitting on days off from Waitress, or I'd come in early before I was due at the theater, and uh, Ebony Smith in there would record my my takes. And I, I think I did three different takes with different lyric attempts, because I think the first bridge attempt, I, I wasn't satisfied. So I came back another time and re-sang that bridge. I also had to recut the cadence of the post to lay back a bit. And then the third time we came in, I brought Raining Jane in and we did a number of different vocal sessions for that in, in one day, uh, or at least I'd say a number of different songs. And by the time Waitress ended for me, I went back to California in February and I believe we mixed Have It All in late February of 2018 with Tony Maserati, who even in mixing continues to take liberties on arrangement and does a beautiful job at helping us define what the song is going to sound like. By March, we'd made a music video for the thing, and I think we put it out in April. I want to say it happened fast, but it really took five years for that song to be written, discovered, workshopped, produced, reproduced, mixed, etc. You know, a number of different steps, a lot of patience. And that's not the first one of my songs to take that many years to do that. And so with Have It All, I felt like, oh yeah, why are some of my more successful songs required to have this aging process? I think the patience 
really helps. It also helps to have a hundred songs in your catalog and let an A&R person go through them and help curate that set list or the album playlist. Because as a writer, you're so deep in it that you really can't see what you have. You're, you're married to too many ideas. Someone in A&R can, can really look at that repertoire and go, oh, this will connect with this and that, and this can still reach you in this. And they can just help put all the pieces together. So Right now is probably a perfect time to talk to David Silberstein, Jason's A&R man at Atlantic, about exactly what we were just talking about. I've been at Atlantic for about four years now. I was working on some other projects, and there was an A&R who'd been working with them for a long time named Sam Reback. And Sam ended up leaving Atlantic to go take another job. During that time, he'd known that I'd been a big Mraz fan for much of my musical upbringing. Introed me to some of Mraz's team, and at the time, it was a possibility of starting to work together, but it actually took about a year for it to transpire as um, Raz kind of did a bunch of his own sessions and was working with Pete Gambark, who I ended up co ring uh, the record with. Yeah, about a year and a half ago, Pete called, basically said, you know, you should go down and meet Mraz. And we met up at a restaurant and just had a great conversation and kind of told me what his vision for the album was and what he wanted to try to accomplish with it. And we were on the same page and just kind of started off on that journey of kind of beginning the process of setting up some new sessions and really looking under the hood at a bunch of old songs to kind of see if there was any gold there and kind of trying to dig up some great songs of the past to bring back for this album. So I think that the truth is Jason had done a lot of writing sessions. And I think for him, it was a little bit of maybe too many writing sessions to the point where he might have lost a little bit of focus of what he actually wanted to do. So when we sat down, we kind of just said, I said to Jason, what do you want to accomplish with this record? And he was super gracious and amazing. You know, he was like, I really just want to deliver something that's very positive and uplifting and happy. I'm in a really happy time in my life. And I want to, I want to deliver that and bring that to the crowds and the fans live. And let's try to accomplish that. So we kind of circled back with some of his core collaborators that he's much more comfortable with. Like I said, look back at a couple of his songs that he'd already written and kind of reimagine them. So, I mean, at the beginning of the process, I don't know that we knew that we were going to end up meeting and working with Andrew Wells on a lot of the production of the record. But as it pertains to the subject matter and the writing, and just what he wanted to deliver as a message, I think that that actually did come up in that first conversation that we had. So that was definitely his vision, was something very positive and kind of this message of service. I then pressed David about how they whittled down so many songs from such a prolific writer. Jason had written a lot of amazing songs, and especially with an artist with as amazing of a voice as Jason has, sometimes it's tough because every song sounds so good because his voice is so awesome. So we really had to dig deep and kind of look at a lot of songs and go through what we thought were our favorite. I think one of the transitional moments was looking back at this song, Have It All, which ended up becoming the first single. And right after I got the call to come join the project, I was actually hanging out with Jay Cash's wife, who's an amazing uh, publisher and manager. Her name's Jamie. And uh, she played me that song. She said, there's this amazing Mariah song that Jay Cash has wrote with him a while ago. Have you ever heard it? And of the 
maybe a hundred songs that I listened to, that was my favorite song. So I kind of brought it up to Jason and was like, hey, man, this is an amazing song. What do you think? Jason was like, oh, yeah, I really like that one. So he kind of started tinkering around with it and revamping it. And eventually we brought that song to uh, this producer named Andrew Wells, who kind of reimagined the production and ended up becoming the core producer for this album. And it, I think it really then steered at least the production and a bunch of the future writing after that moment to uh, go this new direction. And now here's Andrew Wells talking about his involvement with the album. Basically, it was a super weirdly organic process in that I had just gone through a bunch of kind of changes on the management side and was kind of figuring the business out. And a good friend of mine is this guy, David Silberstein, who works at Atlantic, who's been like the biggest Mraz fan, you know, since day one. I think he'd been at Atlantic for a little bit and was like, who's A&Ring Mraz? Like, can I work on that? I had produced one kind of organic project that he'd heard that really no one was too aware, but he was like, let's try Andrew to produce this song we've had for years just sitting called Have It All. My manager is actually really close with David Silberstein and was working with Jay Cash and when he wrote that song and with uh, with Mraz and it was just kind of sitting and she was like, hey David, what about this song? And she had just started managing me at the time. So it's this crazy kind of convoluted train that eventually led to me just taking a stab at it. He, I got sent the files and I called two friends of mine, um, this drummer, Rob Humphreys, who's kind of been like the backbone of the entire album and my friend, John Joseph. We took a stab at it, just kind of a shot in the dark of what I wanted Jason Mraz's, you know, first song out in a long time to sound like and that kind of just snowballed into let's try another song he was the easiest and coolest artist i've ever worked with i'd send off what i did and he'd respond like amazing i love it and i've never worked with an artist where the, the chemistry was that like we're so you know in sync like that and then it kind of really just exploded into the whole album going down to the farm and writing and all that there were i want to say six different bridges written to this song and that had completely different characteristics and he was actually in new york doing waitress and him and i hadn't met until have it all was like completely finished even a couple others were like completely done and him and i had never been in the same room we would just email and text back and forth and there was kind of a vibe but seeing his dedication to like and i'm telling you all the best artists are like this obsessed as they should be with their music and i mean he wrote this bridge i think i could find five or six different versions and I, I remember having a folder of so many different pro tool sessions that i it was honestly a shot in the dark sending it to mixing but he uh, he cracked it and it turned out to what it is now and it's so cool to see how well it's doing and it's like again all the best artists over scrutinize their work and six bridges later i think it worked out i then asked jason what were his thoughts on how he should shape this album Every album you go into it thinking, this is going to be the album where I say something. And I feel like I did accomplish that. There are nuggets on this record that I'm so proud of. In the song Better With You, the bridge lyric is, Life's about the people who surround you, and love's the only thing it comes down to. And those little couplets, those little phrases like that, sound so trivial or something that you would, you know, see on a bumper sticker or I don't know how to describe it. But when you write again and again and again and again and again, and then you land on something simple, 
that touches you and you know you'll be able to sing this night after night and say so much with so little, that to me is what makes it so worth it. So I set out to write any record thinking, yes, I'm going to have a huge statement. I'm going to change the world. And my working title for this album from day one was Masterpiece, a play on Masterpiece. But it was two words, all caps, Masterpiece, P-E-A-C-E, because not to call myself a master of peace, but really to challenge the listener or the viewer of the album title. I think that's the game here as a human. We're here to master peace. We know from day one, we're going to die. And so we have to spend our whole life dealing with death. And art is a great way for us to be comforted, whether we're a creator or we're a receiver of the art. It gives us a chance to celebrate humanity's song, celebrate humanity's beauty, vision, and creation, and things that were left behind from other generations, gifted to us, things that we get to gift to future generations ourselves. I think art helps us deal with death. And yet we're still masters of war. And art is a great way to combat that. Art is our greatest weapon in the war against unhappiness. I wanted to create that record that teaches us those things, that gives us those nuggets of wisdom and comfort, joy. And I had to, and I'm always surprised when I write a record, but you really have to have your heart broken open. You really have to deal with rejection. You really have to deal with, you know, thinking you've written something great to have someone tell you, oh, it's okay. No, I think we can beat that. And you have to deal with that. You have to just say, okay, I'm not attached to that. Even though I love it and it's beautiful, it means something to me, maybe the rejection is true. Maybe it's not as universal as something I could potentially write. So I have a few songs that I thought for sure were going to make this record. I have a song I wrote called My Own Shit, which is just about being truthful about things I have to deal with. And it talks about my parents getting older and things that I want to just come out and say. I have another song called Camouflage, which is about, you know, take my camouflage. I don't want to hide anymore. I don't I want to put down all my armor. Songs to me that I thought were all about helping master peace. Over 2016 and most of 17, I wasn't getting any traction. I wasn't getting any love about the album title or about the songs I was submitting. I had a song called Undone. And all of these songs you can find on YouTube. I was playing them live, just trying them out. Undone, kind of almost like lashing out about musical trends and computer music or, you know, manipulated sounds becoming hooks. And to me as a writer, I I just was kind of lashing out about that. But what I realized is you can't have success at the expense of someone else. So if I'm going to, you know, bash someone else or put something else down as like, that's a lesser form of art, then that makes me a lesser form of art as well. So... That is not how I'm going to master peace, you know? I learned a great deal in that. So I had to write those dark songs for my own personal journey to just let some things go. And that's a great thing about songwriting, about art in general, is that we can put that frustration on the canvas. We can splatter that paint instead of splattering someone's blood. We can just get it out in our art form. Raining Jane and I had always joked about following the the Yes album with No. That kept coming back into my brain. And I said, you know, I know this album isn't sonically the same thing as the Yes record, but would you be okay with me using that No title for my next project? I would love to follow Yes with No. And No, to me, sums up our post-truth era that we live in, post the 2016 election when we were introduced to what is now known as fake news. We're drowning in information. So how do we know anything anymore? This record to me says whatever you want, whatever you're after, whatever you're looking for, love is still the answer. 
That's all I know. That to me is how I master peace, is that I ask, what would love do? And that always makes me feel better. And this album has is sewn together with that in mind. Now being married for three years and writing a record that's nourished by my wife and supported by my wife with me either traveling or spending long hours in the studio and being three years into this marriage, I know I love her. You know, I know why I love her. And I know more things now being married to her than I did previously. So I'm grounding myself in that no title for many different reasons. And I just love the play on words, following yes with no. It also gives me a chance to talk about the Yes record, which we've done here today, which again is one of my favorite records that maybe didn't get heard as much as some of my other stuff. So Jason did change something up on this record. It was an interesting new collaborator in the process. Coffee? Honestly, I stopped drinking coffee in 2004, but I didn't really know what coffee was. I, it, back then, it was, for me, it was just milk and sugar, and I didn't drink it. But in 2015, my wife, who's a coffee lover, introduced me to coffee. And so this is really the first album I wrote on coffee. And it's probably why I wrote 140 songs, because it really became a great companion to writing. And with that came the dive into even the horticulture and the plant life. So there's, I love going into nature with music. I think music is humanity's bird song. It's our unique expression. We all have our unique voice. So it's important to listen to nature and be out in nature. And coffee is one of those things. My wife and I, we visited coffee farms. We, we established our own coffee farm. We planted a lot of trees together. We literally had our hands in the dirt. I became a certified yoga teacher during my time off. I wanted to just get closer to that practice because I travel so much. I didn't want to have to rely on yoga studios. Plus every yoga studio I went to, the teacher would always give me something profound to leave leave the classroom with. And I always felt inspired to go write it down and create music around these lessons that were passed on by a yoga teacher. And so I myself wanted to know more about that. I wanted to be closer to that knowledge and maybe be able to offer that to my audience. Like I, I look at a show as 90 minutes to two hours. It's a transformational experience. Same as a yoga class. You're, you go in there to do breath work. And when you go to a concert, you go to sing along, that's breath work. You end up in your heart and you end up awake because to do breath work and to sing, you have to be present. You can't be thinking about yesterday or tomorrow. You can't breathe yesterday or breathe tomorrow. You can only breathe now and you can only sing that song now. So I brought Little Earth little fire, little yoga fire into this album. I didn't surf as much as I would have liked to. I actually spent more time on a train looking at surfers on the Amtrak Surfliner as I was taking the train to LA a lot. And this was the first album too where I, I sent myself to Nashville, spent a month there doing the writer's round. None of the songs from that ended up on the record. Not many songs. I went to a writing camp in France with ASCAP, which was awesome. None of the songs ended up on that. <laughs> I mean, when you look at 140 songs, most of those songs didn't make it on this 10-song album. And now I'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of this season of Inside the Album. Hello, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great albums. In the past, I've been lucky enough to make great records with bands like The Cure, Animal Collective, The Misfits, and over a thousand others. I've written two books and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I am proud to present to you Atlantic Records' Inside the Album podcast. Atlantic has granted me unprecedented access to the artists, producers, managers, and A&R to discuss what goes into really making the great records they release. 
On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. But first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. I thought it was interesting that he wrote all these songs with other people, but most of them didn't make it onto the records. So I asked him if he learned anything from these writers, though, that had impact on the music of the record. I learned just the writing ethic more than anything. And that also allowed me when I was home to go to my desk at 10 o'clock with my cup of coffee, maybe a book that I might have been reading at the time. Um, I've read a lot of yoga books. How Yoga Works is a great one, because that's more of a novel. Some Dave Eggers, who I love, just his descriptive storytelling. So anyway, I would take myself to my desk, and I would just write songs, and I would hack at it until my wife called me into dinner. And then I could just put the song away and be with my wife and have a normal nine to five. And that's what I learned going to Nashville. That's what I learned going to Los Angeles and writing with writers. And occasionally I would pick up like, ooh, a new plugin or a new sound on my keyboard I could use or shortcuts in production techniques so that when I wrote a song and made a demo, I might already be halfway to the final of that song. For example, the opening track of this record is called Let's See What the Night Can Do. And I wrote that in February of 2016 at my house with John Green. And he had just come from Joshua Tree, but he's from England. So he was very influenced by that Southern California beauty and the desert and what it feels like to escape. And that's actually where my wife and I go to camp and escape. We have a fondness for that region. I can't remember what his prompt was. It was actually the piano bounce in that song, which is a little frantic, and I probably can't even sing it to you. That's what he came in with. He's like, I want to do this piano thing over a waltz. And I thought that was very cool. And I started emoting things about getting away to the desert. And the song was formed relatively quickly. We were able to take a nice avocado toast break, thanks to my wife delivering us snacks. That's one thing that my wife did so generously during this album process is We'd be working feverishly in the studio, but she'd always come down to make sure we were fed. And that food energy just kept us going, as well as the coffee. John is a producer in his own right and did a phenomenal demo of that song, enough that pretty much from February 2016, even though I went through three A&R reps during that period of time, all three of those A&R reps loved Let's See What The Night Can Do. That was probably the first song we knew for sure would 
and should be on a record. And when I sent the stems to Andrew Wells later in late 2017, very little needed to be done. We, we re-recorded things, but the essence of that original demo is really still what we, what we did. My, in fact, my original vocal from that demo is still the album version. So I only had to sing that song once on demo day back in February 2016, and it still sounds great. The groove changed a lot, but it's it's still a driving waltz, and I, I love that song so much. Let's drive out to the desert at midnight To dance in the dust of our headlights And score some good seats for the sunrise and dress up in clothes we don't mind getting messed up when no one will know how to get us next i wanted to get into how the record was actually recorded so i turned to andrew wells to talk to me a little bit about the details of that it's interesting because i had literally just or kind of was in the middle of finishing megan trainer's new album which was like the complete opposite. I mean, it's just such a big programmed pop thing. And that's, and I've worked so much in that world, like coming to the Jason Mraz album, it was conscious effort to be like, we're not going to use a single drum sample, programmed loop, anything that like you hear on this album was a person playing it and recorded live. And that was such a, a big part of making this album and the approach of it and it was all about like how organic and real can we keep this and as far as sonic choices it's just most of the sounds on here like we committed we would be recording with one mic over the drums that's um was like distorted and going through a gate and that would be like anytime you hear a drum fill even like on unlonely the fill going into the last chorus is like just this one super trashed up mic and and i wanted to like explore sonics like that that maybe producers hadn't done with him in the past and even though we were keeping it super organic it's like how can we distort some stuff how can we really use the gear in the studio and we made it at east west which is my favorite studio in la where all the gear works everybody knows how to use it and it was really just a live super kind of woody organic approach to the whole album and i think we kind of nailed it and i'm really proud of sonically because i come from that background initially of I just wanted to be an engineer mixer and I doing approaching an album like this is like such a crazy opportunity for a producer today to like go back to the way things used to be recorded but like how can we modernize it and how can we make it feel like a new marasm but that will hold up in you know 20 years sonically and won't feel dated it's honestly a trip man we were you know blocking off time to really track out the full album at East West I'm like cool we'll do these three days for vocals and of course, those three days come around and we do one pass of the first song. I'm like, cool, that sounded pretty, pretty phenomenal. Like, should we do another? He's like, I think we got it. And of course we did. And most all the vocals we hear are like one pass down. There's really no vocal comping to be done with him. He's such a ridiculous singer and every mic sounds good on him. Like there are songs like No Plans is one where it's like literally him singing and playing guitar into one mic. And that's what you hear. And it sounds like we used all the mics in the world because of how crazy his vocal is. But yeah, it was pretty mind-blowing that most of the vocals you hear when, when artists today need comping and tune, there's no tune. There's little to no comping, if any. And it's really just him singing, singing you the song. And here's how Jason saw the recording process go down. I thought this record for a long time was going to be multiple producers because 
I was working with a lot of different producers and writers over a three-year period, really. And we did end up with, I think, four, maybe five different producers on this record. Most of it through Andrew Wells, just in case there was a consistency that we needed some songs to have and or just organize the stems before they went to Tony. And Tony Maserati mixed this entire record and he did such a beautiful job. It was wild and inconsistent for a long time because I did do that whirlwind writing tour, which I honestly hadn't done since my first record. You know, when you sign up to a label as a new artist and you're still developing, odds are they're going to put you through the writer's circuit, which isn't a bad thing because you're going to learn so many different techniques and tools, but also you're going to meet songwriters and see how they live their lives, how you can sustain yourself as a songwriter, how you can pay your bills as a songwriter. That's one of the great things about the writing circuit. So I I wasn't sure how this record was going to come together. It was honestly the foresight and confidence of David Silberstein who helped me organize all of this because I was throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick. Things that I thought were great, sure enough, a month later, weren't as exciting. Most of this record's vocals were recorded at my house. Have It All, of course, was recorded here at Atlantic Studios in New York City. Sleeping to Dream vocals, that may be probably three songs vocals were recorded in L.A., maybe four, but... So a lot of my vocals were recorded at home where I cut a lot of demos. I then asked him to clarify if they're using the demo vocals and just putting that into a finished track or if he's going back and re-singing it after they've found the song. It's a little of both. There's demo vocals on this record, like Unlonely is the demo vocal. Might as well dance is the demo vocal. But a song like Making It Up was originally the demo vocal, but then after we produced it, the demo vocal was just too tired and too slow, so I went back and re-recorded it. But I did that at home, and I'd had time to play that song live a lot. So I was able, I had the freedom to go back, and thanks to digital recording, I can do that. I can ask for a new bounce of the current production, just a stereo instrumental, throw it on the machine. I've got my vocal chain matching things that Andrew might be using, or other producer might be using in their studios. So I cut the vocal at home, send the file back on my hotspot. And by the next morning, the vocals mixed in, you know, with, or if I want to add harmonies the same way. So I, I'm very blessed that I can do most of it at home. But we did a lot of stuff at East West. Anything we did with Andrew Wells, we did at East West, um, either in the Pet Sounds room or right next door in Studio Two, which was a really beautiful space and a really cool studio. When you step out the back door of that studio, there's a clear shot through the alley of many buildings and many blocks of the Hollywood sign. It's just an alley, nothing special, but just that glimpse of that green mountain to the north with the Hollywood sign still makes you feel giddy even after 15 years of recording and being in LA and New York and all over the planet. It's, you know, there's just still like a, I'm in it. There's a kid, as an 18 year old kid in me that's stoked. Like you're still going and still doing it in the town where it happens. So that was cool. Andrew used top-notch session guys, Rob Humphreys on drums, Sean Hurley on bass, who's a monster. Andrew himself is a great guitar player, played a lot of the guitars on this record. I was able to bring Toga Rivera in, who's a lifelong collaborator with me, vocalist and percussionist. Raining Jane is on this record in many different capacities. They would show up here in New York, they'd show up in LA, they'd show up in San Diego. And so this album is really 
pieced together from a lot of different sessions. So David Hodges had done sessions on some songs at his place. Dan Wilson produced a lot at his house. He produced Love is Still the Answer, and and I co-wrote that song with him. He was very much a champion of my masterpiece concept, and his... I, I want to say assistant, uh, Yaz, is a graduate of Tesoro High School who recommended her high school choir to be the choir on Love is Still the Answer. And now, ironically, I had just met the choir teacher at the Music Cares Grammy Foundation event a couple of weeks prior to her suggesting that. So I thought it was serendipitous that she's recommending a choir teacher that had been on my mind. I wanted to use this guy's talents. So Keith Hancock, I reached out to him for this song, and I went to their high school, Tesoro High School, with Martin Terefe actually, who produced uh, We Sing, We Dance, We Still Things, and he helped me record the vocals of this choir, I want to say mid-2016, late 2016, I honestly can't remember the date, maybe it was early 2017, but anyway, all these files end up going to Dan Wilson, he puts them all together, he has strings that are recorded, I believe, in Minneapolis, so things are happening all over the place, I have strings recorded at the library in Nashville for a song that's going to end up as a bonus track called Surround Me. Which another irony to where we're sitting is on that piano behind you, kind of put it all together with Raining Jane here in the studio um, on an iPhone before we actually developed the production of the track. I mean, this album took years and almost an inconsistent zigzag pattern all over the country. But luckily, just collecting information on a hard drive, just collecting it and sharing it. And that goes back to one of the lyrics I said earlier in this podcast is life's about the people who surround you and love's the only thing it comes down to. And I attribute a lot of my success, not just on this album, but my career to surrounding yourself with talented people who share your vision and who want to play the game. And I trust them. I trust Andrew Wells. I trust David Silberstein at Atlantic. You know, I, if you allow them to paint with you, then more things are going to happen than I could do myself. That's what the album cover is. That's what our single covers are. You know, we're like one flower. You know, a rose has 90 petals on it. You know, the album is is a rose and, and I can't take credit for that. You know, we're, we are 90 individual petals that all come together to make this thing possible. But luckily I get to put my name on it. <laughs> You just heard Jason talk about Dan Wilson, who you may know from his old band Semi-Sonic, and has also written huge songs for artists like Adele. I talked to him about what it's like to work with Jason since he's worked with him a ton over the years, and he talked about his part in this record. I won't tell you the long story, but I think I first worked with Jason in 2003. We wrote a song called Did You Get My Message, which came out on Mr. A to Z. And we wrote a couple songs after that. We worked on details in the fabric. I, th I guess we've had sort of an ongoing songwriting, hanging out, talking about life type of relationship for, for a long time. It's interesting with, with Jason and me, this happens sometimes, but he and I are repeat offenders, or maybe it's actually the best possible outcome, which is sometimes we end up talking about life way more than we end up writing a song that I think turns out to be okay. And a good thing to do and uh, we had done a couple of sessions before we started working on love is still the answer where we had you know kind of written songs that felt sort of like pop songs but somehow they weren't hitting the mark in the sense of like being really really from the heart really really full of soul which is i think what we wanted to somehow get to in all of our songs i think the way love is still the answer came about is that Jason had that title kind of ready to go. And I think probably he had a, a sense of that lilting 6-8 meter 
being the good groove for it. So I think those two things were pre-existing when we wrote the song. I do remember that the idea of love is still the answer was something that he was talking about. And I think it had to do with maybe the sort of relentless negativity of the way ideas are presented in the world right now. And he's such a positive person. And I think he wanted to find a way to make a really positive statement that was still a call to action or engagement or not just uh, drifting away. The writing of this song is kind of a blur to me because it felt almost like a conversation. And there was a lot of moments where I felt like we were laughing because it was the obvious thing to say, and yet also it worked as lyrics. So the first lines, the question is why, why are we here? What a completely blunt, what a completely blunt thing to say in a song where you're trying to talk about the, the largest reasons for our lives. And so I think when those lines happened, and I can't remember if which of us said what parts of them or whatever, but it, it was like so obvious that it was going to be a really, really straightforward, but soulful and hopefully really honest song about life. I then asked him how they wrote this song, if it was music first or lyrics first. We really wrote the song without a track, without thinking about the track. I think it was pretty obvious what the... We were kind of strumming two guitars or playing the piano back and forth. I think it was pretty obvious what the groove was going to be, so we didn't really worry about like creating an arrangement for it or working on the record yet. And I think Jason really, really wanted to make sure that we put all of our energy and effort into digging as deep as we could with the lyrics. To me, there's something about getting to a simplicity and honesty and straightforwardness in lyrics that's like really hard. It's harder to do than being clever or interesting. I think about John Lennon and how he would say the bluntest things that would get laughed out of a writing session. And I think Jason and I kind of needed to almost hypnotize ourselves to relentlessly pursue that kind of simplicity. And we knew it had to be kind of funny. We knew that the wordplay, you know, had to be in effect. It couldn't just be pure earnestness the whole way, you know, but we still had to get to that really honest place. Perhaps we did it the writing in a day, maybe two, but I think it might have been two days. Literally just like singing back and forth. I think we had too many words, too many verses. We had to make some painful decisions about what to remove. That was probably good. Jason said, hey, can I come over with Dre, my bassist, sometime this week and we can make a demo. So one evening, a few days later, the two of them came over and we basically just, uh, I recorded them playing bass and guitar. And for the first few tries at the song, I played piano with them for some weird reason. I mean, partly because I'm fallible, but also I'm not sure why. I kept making mistakes on the piano and distracting ones. And I think in the end, I kind of ended up firing myself from the piano job on the tracking. I kept making these terrible clams. Literally, the, 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 the demo was Dre on the bass and Jason playing guitar and singing at the same time on the same mic. The track just totally got out of hand because we just kept adding things and I sent it to Andy Thompson in Minneapolis and he recorded us a nine-piece string section on it and it just started to become epic and it all came from that first really passionate performance of the two of them. Feels like we've been friends forever, yeah And we always see eye to eye The more time we spend together And the more I wanna say what's on my mind Take it easy You heard Andrew Wells talk before about his work with Megan Trainer, But coincidentally, she's also featured on this record So I wanted to hear about how that happened we had already mixed our record, and I believe, you know, we had to extend our master deadline, or our master deadline, I think, was due May 11th or something. And we were getting a lot of pressure from the product team here at Atlantic, because they're like, look, if you don't give us this record by 
May 1st. We're not going to be able to print it and get it to all the DSPs, digital service providers, in time for a summer release. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we have this opportunity to hook up with Megan Trainer like the first week of May, so after the deadlines. Like, so let's just master the record. And who knows, if if we can write a great song with Megan, we'll bend the rules and see if we can't mix it and master it overnight and squeeze it onto this record. We didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I've met a lot of writers and you spend the first day just talking. Megan is such an incredibly talented and driven young artist and flattering. I walk in and we flatter each other because I think she's a little bit James Brown, a little bit Justin Timberlake, a little bit Adele. She's just got so many different brilliant quality. She's got a little bit of like Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, she's just, she's awesome. And she's also a producer and a great writer. So she, she knows what she wants. And I think she also knew we had a limited amount of time and that we wanted to have success in this short amount of time. So it was she and I and Andrew Wells manning the guitar and manning the recording equipment and kind of dry, helping us Anytime we had an idea, he was making sure he was capturing it on the microphone and building a track around us. And she said, flattered me with, I want to write something as adorable as Lucky. And that I can do because I love simple and adorable. Something my wife says, which is super adorable. My wife just has a really adorable lingo. It might be dyslexia, but I just think it's an adorable lingo of her own. And one of the things she says is more than friends as an adjective. It's like, honey, do you like your coffee? Oh, more than friends. I think that's super cute. And I actually tried to write more than friends with John Green back in 2016. And we, we came up with a version of it and I played it live and it was funny, but it was sort of lowbrow coffee shop humorous song. So I shared it with Megan and Andrew and like, yeah, okay. Concept is great. Let's make it a little more just maybe adult contemporary. Just start riffing. And she immediately has just that very modern style of singing and writing where it's simple and sounds effortless. And a lot of it is driven by the quality of her voice. Like she knows how she wants to sing and she knows the melodies and the riffs that she wants to sing. So it's almost like the words fill the need because we knew we were aiming at more than friends. We could really be playful with that. And it's almost like the punchline was already written for us. So I'd say within two hours, we had the song written. And then in about an hour, we had recorded the nuts and bolts of our vocals to a basic track. That night, Andrew had session guys come in record the backing track. I want to say it was the next day that everything went to mixing. And the day after that, everything went to mastering. And the song got shared with the label. I said, wow, this was a really great last minute addition to the record. And it is. It's a gift. It's a gift to be able to work with someone as in demand as Megan, but also as talented as Megan, because this record was already set to come out. It had its track listing. And then to be able to add potentially another hit to the record at the last minute is, is a real gift and a real blessing. I'm grateful for her and I'm grateful for to Atlantic for giving us that time to take a chance at this. And I'm grateful to Epic, allowing Megan to appear courtesy of Epic Records. And yeah, that's how that came out really, really quick. And honestly, haven't we haven't been in the same room since. Uh, that was a few months ago, but I'm sure we'll cross paths again. I'm dreaming of sleeping next to you I'm feeling like a lost little boy in a brand new town 
Next, I wanted to talk about the song Sleeping to Dream, which has a really great story. There is one song on this record that I wrote in 1999, in the summer of 99 with Peter Stewart. He had a band called Dog's Eye View in the 90s. Great songwriter, one of the first co-writers I ever worked with. And we wrote a song called Sleeping to Dream. And for many, many years, that was a live song. And it, it has appeared on a live album that we released in 2004. And it appeared on a live digital album that was released in 2005. But other than that, it never had a home. And David Silberstein at Atlantic said, hey, what about this song? Why didn't this song ever make it on a studio record? And, you know, similar to the story of Have It All. It's like, I don't know. It just, we tried on my first album. It didn't make the cut. So... I never looked back. We played it live. It made it on some live stuff. But again, I never looked back. As a writer, you're always looking ahead at what other problem can I solve? What other beauty can I discover about myself or about the world that I can reflect on? So Silberstein had the idea of, let's try it. Let's take it into the studio. And that was inspiring because honestly, I had never really finished writing Sleeping to Dream. The bridge, I always mumbled. And in a live show, I would use it as an opportunity to improvise and try to reinterpret. But I'd never had a lyric for it. So that occurred to me the day I was cutting vocals for Sleeping to Dream. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't mumble this or make this up right now. This needs to be a definitive lyric to help me finish this song. So I told Andrew, I said, hold on one second. <laughs> I just had to force myself. But honestly, having been through the songwriting process with, I want to say, 75 songwriters over the last two years, at least, because I'd say half of the 140 songs I wrote were with other people. I said, okay, if I were in a situation like that and I were asking for help or, or looking around the room for a suggestion on this bridge... I didn't have anyone, and I didn't want to reach out. I was like, you have it in yourself. What is this song about? And what, what have you always been trying to say on the bridge? And so I said, okay, Andrew, I got it. And I sang what the message of that bridge should have been all along. And it felt really great to me. So I got inspired by the trust and encouragement of Silberstein on this record, probably more than anyone on this record, because you need A&R. You really do. And, uh, and he inspired me again and again to, to either rethink a situation or dive deeper. And I was also inspired by the 75 writers that I crossed paths on. A lot of writers who we wrote some brilliant stuff that may never be heard. Writers like Steph Jones, Amy Cooney, Sean Douglas, to, to name a few. I'm sorry, there's m many out there that obviously that I didn't mention, but have inspired me as a writer and brought my game up. So in that moment in Sleeping to Dream, I was able to finish writing that song and it finally has a home now on a record. And so to me, that was a, a really inspiring part of this record as a whole, as this album as a whole. And here's Andrew Wells talking about the song. It was honestly such an, an easy process. The one thing that was, I don't even know that I'd call it a struggle, but that, that I took very seriously is like there are songs on this album that he's played live for the past like 20 years the past 15 years that his fans know so well that for whatever reason has never really made it on to an album and there's one song like sleeping to dream in particular that like has been like a fan favorite live and then it's there is a certain pressure of me coming and being like i'm gonna you know help him 
record this for the first time, like, and the fans already love it. So it's like we can't make a version that the fans don't love as, as much as the, you know, the live version they've heard for so long. I think we nailed it and ended up being one of one of my favorites on the album. I pack my bags, I'm gone away I'm only leaving for a day It's nice to have some time alone And it's nice to know why I miss home I always think it's interesting to talk to the people who work with an artist about what makes them unique. So here's Andrew Wells talking about what makes Jason unique. Literally everything about him. I truly don't know anyone like him. And that was honestly the highlight for me of the whole album was spending some time with him on his avocado farm. And he has like the most gorgeous studio at the center of it. And like the frequency at which he lives his life down there is amazing. Like I've never worked in a studio where you step outside and there's, it's just silence, like nature. And he's at the heart of it. And and I feel like advice that it has an impact on his life and he and he chooses to just live at this complete other frequency that I feel like is so obvious, but he's figured it out. There's truly no one like this dude. And that made it such an easy process, you know, to make this album. He lives his life at another frequency and one that I think like many could use to, to do as well because it's just stress. There was none of that in the room. It, it was just smooth. And I'm recognizing now that like, I don't think I'll work on another album for a long, long time that was as smooth and easy and like fun as this process was with him because of the kind of person he is. And now here's Dan Wilson talking about Jason's unique traits. Well, Jason's a really unique person. First of all, he's a really kind, funny guy. And what you see is what you get. But there's a thing about him where he doesn't always respond to things quickly. The processing power in his brain, it takes a few seconds sometimes for him to respond. So there's a whole different rhythm. We're just hanging out and talking with him because he's not glib. Everything goes through the whole computer and comes back out. So it's a different tempo of conversation. And among the artists that I know, he's one of the very most kind of socially engaged. He has a a real sense of purpose. He wants to have fun. He wants to enjoy making music with his friends. That's obvious. But he also wants his music to have a a net positive effect in the world. And he wants to use his platform to influence people to to do things that are are healthy for the world and for other people. He's very intentional about that. And most artists these days are very cautious about their platform. They don't want to say anything that's going to alienate anybody. And people are so cautious that they're not willing to... I mean, the world of trolling is so intense that if you said, like, we need to save the earth, then you would be like instantly made a mockery of and magically with wordplay be turned into a villain by the Internet and the trolling world out there. And so artists are really, really cautious about like losing their platform by stepping out in any way. Jason completely goes against that. He just he completely speaks earnestly about what he thinks would help the planet and help our society and help, you know, each other coexist. And it's inspiring. It's great. Auspiciousness and causes of success. May you have the confidence to always do your best. Thanks so much for listening. To find more of our podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. Jason Mraz's No is out now and streaming on all services.